I just did a blog post not long ago. So I wanted to see if anybody had wanted to pipe up on this. Um, and I, and I, the blog post wasn't the greatest. I didn't explain myself very well, but I asked if there can be multiple levels of universality. And then what I was really asking about though, was if there could be multiple levels of computational universality. And, and that was the part I didn't explain very well. And this actually relates to what Dennis just said. He said that physics is computational. Then he said, well, I mean, I've read that in David Deutsch, but I, I've never actually studied physics. In Ooh, fact, sorry. Can but, I just, I don't mean to interrupt, but um, I wonder if I would turn that around. Okay. I would say computation is physical. I don't know if physics is computational. Okay. Because uh, then, then, then you get into the realm of people claiming that the universe is just a simulation. Right. Fair point. Fair point. In our last podcast that Cameo and I did, I, and then I also put this up on, uh, as a, a blog post, I pointed out that David Deutsch had actually raised the issue of maybe when we find a, a new theory of physics, a theory of quantum gravity, that it, it seems possible we may be able to build Oracle machines, which would be machines that could solve the halting problem. At least they could solve it for Turing machines, not for themselves. That would actually extend what type of computation could be done using just the laws of physics, which would be an example of what Dennis just said, where it would mean that as we currently define something to be computational as matching a Turing machine, that in fact physics can do something that isn't computational. We could then turn around and build a machine out of that and it would have a new type of computer. So I was asking, does that mean that there's multiple levels of universality of computation? And then in general, are there multiple levels of universality? would be kind of the sub question. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? So Yeah. So, um, okay. Oh, go ahead, Vachal. I, I just want to mention that uh, definitely there can be many levels of universality just because when you say, when you talk about universality, that there are, this is something that with, with respect to some domain and now the domain can, like there can be some domain that is contained inside another domain which contain inside another domain, and in each of which you can have something universal with, res with, with respect to that domain. And so like uh, domain A is inside domain B, and you have some universal process in for, for A, but then there can be a universal process for B, and, and that for the one for A is contained in B. So it's just abstractly, definitely there can be like uh, some many level or even com incomparable uh, universality that there can be in fact, something like that. Deutsch actually says that, that universality can come in hierarchies, which is what you just described. Yeah, so. yeah. and just, I can, um, I think I'll try to give a uh, sort of more um, down to earth example rather than um, to just sort of make this more clear um, instead of having it just in an abstract level to return to the uh, example that Dennis gave about, uh, you know, the movable type press the uh, a Gutenberg machine, you know, with all the the different letters that you can rearrange, is universal for printing books with you know Arabic characters, you know the the characters that we use um, today. Or sorry, not Arabic characters. I'm thinking of Arabic numerals, but you know the the letters used in uh, English. But if you want to print a book in Chinese, a Gutenberg press designed for English isn't going to help you. Now you could have a machine that would be able to print you know any book that uh, you know written in any language which is to say that it would be rep capable of representing any character. And, you know, a modern printer that can just, you know, print arbitrary shapes, you know, with ink is, uh, is an example of such um, a machine. And so, you know, a modern printer is sort of, you can think of it as being universal for printing any uh, book or any text, 
whereas a Gutenberg press would be um, universal for printing English texts or oh. texts that at least use the English language. And so that would be a, um, a, an example of a scenario where there's a domain within another domain, um, the first domain being just uh, books in the English language or with English characters, um, and the second, do or the second domain being just you know, the broader notion of books uh, written in any character set. So back in back in my day, we had, we had printers that were like typewriters, where they just had a letter on them, and then they switched right. to dot matrix, where they could form any anything that fit within that dot matrix. So really, I never thought of this before, but you're right, that was actually a jump from one form of universality, uh, being able to print English documents with words, to a, to being able to print any language, but even then to be able to print graphics, right? Because now exactly. You Right. Okay. That's excellent example. Thank you. Okay. So now let's, let's tie this back into AGI. So actually can, can I add one oh, more thing? Yes, uh, because absolutely. this is related to universality of, of computation. Uh, because when we talk about Turing machine, Turing machine is just a, like something called finite automata equipped with like a tape, a long tape, basically a memory. And uh, if you throw away this uh, memory, memory out the long tape, then you just only have finite automata. So, and this thing, although it is not, it is not a machine that can, like, it's not universal for, for all computation anymore, but it is still universal with respect to some small set, actually. Right. And that is something that you are familiar with, uh, which is, is a regular expression. Regular expressions, right. Yeah. So any regular expression can be decided by finite auto automata. And uh, so finite automata is like universal with respect to this small class. So like, yeah. And um, just to point out. Yeah. All right. Excellent. In fact, we, we actually talked about that a couple podcasts ago. So that was a good Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so, um, no, you just explained how that ties in. That's exactly what I was looking for. So I, I guess I hadn't actually even thought of it that way, but you're right. Uh, regular expression is a type of universality, but it's not, it's not universal. It's not all algorithms, right? It's, it, it, it's a, exactly. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. So now what does this have to do with AGI? So David Deutsch has this term he calls universal explainers. Can somebody maybe explain what a universal, what, what is David Deutsch's concept of a universal explainer and what, how does it relate to AGI and why is it important in terms of trying to understand what AGI is going to turn out to be? Sure, so I can take a stab at uh, you know, defining a universal explainer. So the, the notion of a universal explainer is essentially a, um, an entity, you can think of it as a mind, that is um, capable of explaining anything that is explicable. So um, a, the, the conjecture is that we humans are like this, um, that if there is anything that can possibly be explained about our universe, about mathematics, et cetera, um, we are uh, a type of entity which can create uh, that explanation. So we are you know, universal in the domain of creating explanations. Any explanation which can possibly be created by anything uh, can be created by a universal explainer. And so this is sort of a way of looking at um, really the, the idea of general intelligence. One way to think about general intelligence is that it can create any knowledge um, and sort of this alternate way of looking at it um, the universal explainer way is that it is capable of coming up with any explanation that can possibly be created. Okay, excellent. Anyone else want to add to anything on that? On that? I think that was a good, good explanation. Okay. 
So in essence, then a universal explainer is an AGI or the word A in AGI is artificial. So human beings would be not artificial general intelligence. That's, that's obviously an arbitrary distinction that doesn't really mean much, but we are general intelligences. We are universal explainers. An AGI would be like maybe on a computer creating a person, um, not in biology, but on the computer that is also a universal explainer. Is that, that what you're getting at, Ella? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So now Steven Pinker has made the argument that most maybe many of you may not even know this, but he actually made the argument that science has things that it, it cannot explain and that it's an, it's like the integers he said, or it's a lower level of universality, but there's some things that are inexplicable. What do you think of that, of his position on that, I guess would be my, my question. And would that put any damage to the idea of an AGI if that were true? So uh, it, it's it's certainly conceivable that you can imagine that, um, you know, human beings are not universal explainers. There's things about the world that we just simply can't explain. But in, in David Deutsch's terminology, that would be um, an easy to vary explanation, which is to say there's just not really much detail to it. Um, it's just sort of saying, well, there is something out there which is inexplicable. And that's just not really a very good theory because it's, you know, first of all, it's unfalsifiable. You know, you could just keep saying, oh, well, there's something out there which is inexplicable. With, but if you don't say this particular phenomenon, um, you know, no human will ever explain it. This particularly is inexplicable. If you had that, that could be, um, you know, hard, fair explanation. That could be, you know, something worth looking into. But, um, you know, the, the basic idea of just, well, perhaps there are things out there which are inexplicable to us. There's just not much content there. It's not really worth thinking about. Um, and as of yet, uh, I don't think anybody has been able to um, make a good argument that any um, particular phenomena or any, you know, conjecture, anything in mathematics is just fundamentally ununderstandable by humans. Okay, so to, to paraphrase you then, we can conceive the idea of a partial universal explainer or a universal explainer that only explains some things, but we have no good reason to believe that. That would just be a, a bad explanation at this point. Therefore, the better explanation is that we can explain everything. Is that what you're getting at? Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly a valid conjecture. It could be true, but um, it's just, unless there's some particular theory, uh, you know, a detailed theory that says this is inexplicable, there's just not really, you know, much to say about the theory. It's just kind of a, a vague, um, you know, easy to vary, um, you know, suggestion, which just isn't really worth taking seriously is sort of the way that I think about it. Okay. There is a, somebody, oh, sorry, somebody asked um, David a similar question when, like, years ago, he was on a Boston radio show. I have the link I can share later. I forget the name of the program where somebody asked him, well, how do you square the notion that we're universal explainers with the fact that there are, that we know that there are unknowable truths? Um, and I'm out of my wheelhouse there too, but if I understand correctly, because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, there are things about mathematics we can't know or we can't ever prove to be true or prove to be untrue, if I'm not totally butchering it. You're correct. It can't prove to be true. And so David said, well, but that doesn't, you could still write a paper about why you think, why you conjecture that it's true or why you conjecture that it's untrue. So in, in terms of the, the knowledge that a person can create, you've still made progress there. And I would also add that you can, um, even though there may be things that are in principle unknowable, that doesn't necessarily mean that the set of all knowable things is finite. So there's still infinite room 
for progress to be made and for knowledge to be created. Okay, thank you. In fact, I actually have a list of objections that I've heard in the past to the creation of AGI, and you just nailed one of them, Dennis, which oh, cool. was Godel's incompleteness theorem. Okay, let's actually talk about some of the other ones that I've heard, and I, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate, and I'm going to argue with, with you guys, and I'll play the role of the, of the doubter, that each of these would stop AGI be, from being real, and explain to me why this is, these are bad arguments, okay? So one of them was Godel's incompleteness theorem. I actually think Dennis did a good job on that one. So another one I've heard is, well, what about like four-dimensional space or space more than three dimensions? I can't comprehend that at all. You know, so therefore, there's something there, you know, non-Euclidean non geometry exists. We know it exists through uh, Einstein's theories. Doesn't that show that we're not really universal, that we can't comprehend everything? In fact, uh, I think Pinker used this example. Well, if... So I, I'm not sure that we don't understand four-dimensional space because um, I know that there is, you, can, you, you, you can have equations with four-dimensional vectors, with n-dimensional vectors, and they work the same for, you know, for four dimensions and ten dimensions as they do for three dimensions or two dimensions. It's, that strikes me as a sort of argument, we can't perceive four dimensions. Like when I look out at the world, I'm looking at my window now, I see three dimensions. But that strikes me as an issue of hardware, maybe? I don't really know. I mean, maybe if we had different senses, we could see it. But that, isn't, that doesn't place any theoretical limit on what we could know that strikes me as a particular soluble problem. Uh, maybe we could create knowledge that allows us to, excuse me, that allows us to uh, build additional hardware that we, that we could connect to us that then would allow us to see the world differently. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that we don't understand four-dimensional space or four dimensions or whatever, whatever you said. Yeah, um, so and I, I think to, to answer this, like our sense uh, that uh, we have been uh, evolved until now, the mm -hmm. sense is uh, not universal. This uh, five, the, the sense that we have are not universal. The senses, but, right. But like the, our access to explanation is still universal. It's, it's still true that our sense are quite rich. Uh, when, we, when we understand something through our sense, this is so rich and we feel that we really understand it in many aspects. But, um, but the fact that we can access uh, four-dimensional space through explana explanation, maybe it's not as rich as you, 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 look at, using your, you, look in, you look at it using your eyes. It is still some comprehension and this kind of comprehension using ex explanation is infinite. And, uh, and, that, and we, we conjecture that this is universal. Okay, thank yeah, you, and excellent. Both, both of you gave great answers, by the way. And actually, I, I agree with what you're saying, Dennis. I, I actually think that this is a misunderstanding between what we mean by comprehend versus what we can kind of envision in terms of senses, right? So yeah, I, there's, there's something, can, can I elaborate? I don't mean to sure. prolong this, but if I may elaborate, there, there's something to be said even about the understanding of three-dimensional space. It's not that our senses give us immediate access to that understanding. Mm -hmm. um, in my book, I give this example from the Oxford Companion to the Mind, where there's a really fascinating account of a boy who was born blind, had cataracts, and through surgery, he was then able to see as a teenager. And he ha really had problems understanding three dimensions and it took him a long time like to him everything was just on a plane 
And it took him a long, like he wouldn't understand, at least not immediately, the difference between a, a, photo, a photograph or a picture and the difference, like just looking out at the world. Right. Um, so even if your senses in principle give you access to, let's say, the three-dimensional space out there, by no means does that mean that you will simply comprehend three-dimensional space. That has to come from inside you. This is a theory about the world that children come up with, amazingly, really, that their senses don't give them. Uh, don't, uh, yeah, so um, the senses play a very minimal role there. Um, the senses just provide data, but the, 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 the theory that the world is three-dimensional, that space is three-dimensional, is a conjecture that minds come up with that is not at all ingested through, through the senses. I'll go one better than you on that one, Dennis. I actually know people who like work in mathematics or physics or something that have told me, oh, actually, I've started to comprehend things in four-dimensional space because I've, I've worked with it so much. Wonderful. Yep. So yeah, that, That's what I was going to um, say, actually. I was um, hoping to, you know, get a little, um, some, I was hoping to say a little something just to put a cap on this since we've been spending a bit of time on this. But I, it seems um, to me that, uh, well, basically what I was going to say is, I would guess if you took a human brain or something computationally equivalent to a human brain and put it into a fourth dimensional universe, then it would learn, um, you know, the, the, with appropriate senses, perhaps it would learn, um, you know, to have an intuition about how four dimensional space works just as well as we do with three dimensional space. And then, you know, perhaps it would go on to say, oh, well, fifth dimensional space, that's just completely unexplainable. Right. You could never possibly explain that. And I think that would again be a mistake if fifth dimension, uh, you know, of mind in the fifth dimension would work just as well. Um, I think what's going on here and what's leading, misleading um, Pinker and others who think this way is that we just have a, a ton of, you know, sort of um, intuition and inexplicable inexplicit knowledge in our minds about how 3D space works. And so it's just so intuitive to think about 3D space, whereas it's not intuitive to think about 4D space for most people. But people who have spent enough of their lives doing, you know, four-dimensional mathematics do develop somewhat of an intuition for, um, you know, what uh, what uh, fourth dimension would just sort of be like. And so I don't think that there's any um, fundamental limitation there. It's just, uh, you know, we it's, it's easier to think about what we're used to. Thank you. Let me use one more objection that I've heard that I, I feel like probably needs a, a bit of rebuttal. So I've heard this idea that, hey, we've moved from metaphor, to, from metaphor to metaphor about brains in the past. You know, at one point we thought it was like a steam engine. At one point, in fact, I actually had a neuroscientist recently say this to me, right? She, I was talking with her about my interest in building AGI. She said, well, it, it's, it's probably not correct to think of the brain as a computer. That's a metaphor and, but we've had other metaphors in the past. We've thought of it as a steam engine. We've thought of it as you know, a clockwork mechanism. Based on whatever our current technology is, we liken the brain to that. But in reality, the brain isn't a computer. It's no more a computer than it is a steam engine. What do you guys say to that? Yeah, so I think that the, the core um, misunderstanding there is that um, computational theory isn't really just the theory about these machines that we've built that we call computers. You know, it's not just about, this is how plates of silicon interact with one another. The theory of computation, um, as it was, you know, uh, described by Alan Turing and, you know, the later computer scientists, it's a theory about what kinds of sort of information processing are possible in the universe and which are not. And the computers that we have, you know, the physical objects, which we call computers, 
are sort of instantiations of that theory that allow us to do information processing. But, you know, I, I think that some people when they hear, oh, well, you know, the brain is a computer, they, you know, think it's just a metaphor to like, oh, you're saying, you know, my brain is like this laptop sitting on my desk. And if that's all you're thinking of, then it's understandable why, you know, you would say, oh, that's just silly. You know, you're calling the brain a steam engine, essentially, or you would have 100 years ago. But really what's being said when somebody says the brain is a computer is a precise, um, you know, statement about a computational theory. And it's saying the brain is capable of, uh, you know, performing or simulating any computational process, which anything in the universe can simulate, is what it means to say that the brain is a universal computer. And so it's, it's not really a metaphor being used here. It's, uh, you know, a, a rigorous mathematical statement to say that the brain is a computer. And so I think that people who just view it as a metaphor along the lines of, you know, the, the mind is a steam engine or something, are just sort of not really understanding the full argument. All right. Thank you. Anyone want to add to that? So I think here, when we say the brain is computer, computer is an abstraction, and the brain is an instantiation of that abstraction. So it's not a metaphor that, to say that the brain is similar to other to another object. It's not. It's not uh, because we are like talking about abstraction now. So. All right. Thank you. Um, anyone else? So I'm I'm gonna speak up for just a minute. One of the things as somebody who doesn't know a lot about, um, you know, all the theories around artificial general intelligence, one of the things that is super interesting to me is we always look at our intelligence as a very aspirational thing for a place we want our computers to get to if we're going to be able to build this general intelligence. But humans are kind of crappy as computational machines sometimes. We're not great at gathering data, you know, these examples we were just talking through of our perceptions of 3D space. Our data gathering systems are awful. They're easily tricked. Our senses are very fallible. Our ability to reason through things without being swayed by our biases. We're just kind of crappy at that aspirational idea of a computer and what we kind of think it should be. So it's really interesting to me that, uh, I don't know. That, that's my musings listening to all of this. So no, great, great musing. Does anyone want to talk to that? that? I actually think there's a lot of things that could be said about that. Yeah, something came to mind for me when you said that, and that was what Turing said about this issue. Um, and he distinguishes between what he calls errors of functioning and errors of conclusion. So what you're describing, like saying, for example, you know, humans have certain biases or our senses are easily fallible. I think that is true. But I think it is a fruitful approach to distinguish between these two different kinds of errors that Turing suggests. So there is a program in the human brain that makes up a person. And that person is still, that program still runs, you know, in scare quotes, mindlessly, step by step, without any room for deviation from the instructions. Maybe it's, this has some interesting implications for free will. I don't think this conflicts with free will, but, um, uh, and other issues there that are interesting to discuss maybe, but, um, it's, so there's still a program that sort of just executes, executes, executes stubbornly step by step, just like a computer would. And so there are no errors of functioning necessarily happening there, unless maybe you have some brain damage or a disease, then maybe errors of functioning can occur. So errors of functioning would be if I, if I don't, uh, misrepresent Turing here, if I remember correctly, errors of functioning are, oh, your computer, there was an issue in the processor or something. It took a wrong step. But then errors of conclusion 
are the kinds of things that, that strike me as what you described as, you know, biases in our thinking or in our senses where um, we have this program that is us, that is a person has created, um, let's, let's say, a piece of knowledge. And that piece of knowledge later turns out to be erroneous in some sense. Well, that doesn't mean that this piece of knowledge couldn't have been created by a program. That's not necessarily what you were saying, but, it, but what, I'm, what I'm trying to draw attention to is the fact that just because people make mistakes, just because they're fallible, that is still, we can still square that with the notion that the brain is a computer, if that makes sense, because those are different kinds of, those are different categories of error. Yeah, that actually makes complete sense. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I'd, look, I'd sort of like to say something on the subject too, which is that um, there, there's a certain sense in which I completely agree with you in that the, the human brain is not a very, you know, good aspirational goal and that uh, it's surely the case that um, the human brain isn't a very well-designed computer, you know, um, it, it could probably make, be made much more efficient. Our senses could probably be made much more accurate. You know, if, if you try to do a calculation of the speed or the memory of the brain, um, then I suspect it, it wouldn't be anything too amazing. And so it's not that we're aiming to, um, it's not really that we're aiming at sort of the hardware or the, the sort of peculiarities of the way the human brain works as an aspiration. What, what's um, aspirational about the human brain or the human mind is just that somewhere in it, there is the universality, the um, universal explainer. That is at least a, a part of our mind or our brain. And that is um, the thing that's very, very special and that epistemology and AGI are still trying to figure out. And that's sort of um, the, the piece of the brain or the mind that we um, are sort of aspiring to recreate. But it would certainly be nice to you know, um, be able to recreate that little piece of the mind, the universal explainer parts with much better hardware and you know, much faster processing speed, much more memory. And uh, I think that that will certainly be uh, you know, very, very good once that happens. And so you know, the hardware of the brain isn't particularly aspirational, but it's just that it is running a program that um, is very aspirational is the way that I think about it. So I, I want to ask a couple of questions about hardware and, and not just of the brain, but of the body. You know, when you start to talk about an artificial general intelligence, how much of our processing power in our brain or even our, our holistic ability to, to comprehend things is actually impacted by the hardware and not just the brain, but the physical manifestation of, of us? Can you actually build a computer that doesn't have a, a general intelligence that doesn't have the ability to have senses and ever have it be wholly uh, intelligent? Well, um, I, I, I can start to answer this. I suspect that you could have, you know, a, a, an intelligence running, um, you know, with no sensory input. So you can imagine a, a human being in a perfect sensory uh, deprivation tank. They would still continue to have thoughts, you know, even if they were born in that and kept in there their whole life. You know, you could, you could imagine them still coming up with thoughts, you know, thinking about things, um, perhaps in a form unrecognizable to us, but there would still be intelligence there. But um, I think to be able to recognize intelligence, you know, if we have some uh, candidate program and we're trying to see if it is intelligent or not, that's not going to be, you know, the right way to test it because it, it'll be hard to tell in that case. We're going to want to sort of instantiate the, um, the AGI in a, a body of some sort with some sort of sensory organs or um, some sort of, er, and um, some sort of, you know, you know, appendages or, uh, for manipulating the outside world or some way of, you know, broadly speaking, just some way of uh, having input and providing outputs. 
And that body could either be, you know, something in the real world, you could put it in a little robot, or it could be, um, you know, something simulated in the simulated environment. You have it, you know, perhaps it can move around, interact with simulated objects. Um, so uh, I do suspect that um, in order to really, you know, get the benefits of intelligence and to be able to recognize intelligence, you'll want something not just, you know, an abstract intelligence, but something embedded in an environment where it can interact and take input and give output. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.